in the view of neoliberals, the university system made students into, into loafers. George Stigler ridiculed liberal arts education in the finishing school. And James Buchanan likened the idea of a transformative education to an acid trip. And guess who was the dealer? Uh, students who didn't pay attention to market signals, in their view, lacked purpose. Uh, both blame this dynamic for the student movement of the 1960s, which they tend to regard as unwarranted and violent. So for them, this low thing had a dark side. The conclusions that they drew will seem familiar. Yeah. Increased tuition, used debt financing. Uh, these were devices to force students to pay attention to market signals. They'd be much less prone to join marches and occupy administrative buildings. I mean, how many accountants did you see in the free speech movement? Welcome to the American Band from the Center for Mark Twain Studies at Elmira College. I'm Matt Siegel. At the top, you heard from Eddie Nika, who will return later in this episode. As Andy Hines described last week, the gradual defunding of public education on the basis of its being an incubator for political radicalism is frequently associated with the tenure of Ronald Reagan as governor of California, following the advice of James Buchanan, then a professor at UCLA. But guess where Buchanan developed those ideas and got his PhD? This is the seventh episode of Criticism Limited. And the second round of the Chicago fight, our deep dive into the origins of Chicago criticism and Chicago economics at the University of Chicago in the 1930s. If you haven't yet listened to the first part, I urge you to do so. But even if you just listened, there's a lot to keep track of. So grab a marker, get out the whiteboard. Let's make a timeline. Robert Maynard Hutchins was hired as president of University of Chicago in 1929 and immediately began preparing his Chicago plan, the first phase of which was implemented during the 1931-1932 academic year. The same year, Paul Samuelson, author of the best-selling textbook of the 20th century, enrolled as an undergraduate. In 1930, Chicago poached two professors from Columbia, a characteristic move of the Hutchins era. Mortimer Adler, a philosopher, would become Hutchins' closest advisor, and Harry Gideons, an economist, would become spokesperson for the faculty resistance to the Chicago plan, a resistance congregated in the social sciences. In the fall of 1931, Milton Friedman came to the university as a master's student in economics. He would be joined the following year by George Stigler and Alan Wallace. All would be on campus during the most combative years of Hutchins' administration from 1934 to 1936. It was also during these years that the Chicago School of Economics took root in the basement of a storeroom in the Social Science Research Building. Although Friedman, Stigler, and Wallace would not all find their ways back to Chicago as faculty members until much later. In 1935, Ronald S. Crane was appointed chair of the English department and Richard McKeon was officially hired away from Columbia and installed as Dean of the Humanities. They were both staunch Hutchins allies, and along with Adler, the most vocal Aristotelians on the faculty. Almost immediately upon being installed as chair, Crane published the essay which expressed his intention and rationale for turning the department away from historicism and towards criticism. Also in 1935, Charles Walgreen and William Randolph Hearst waged their campaign against the Red Network at University of Chicago, the short-term result of which was the sham retirement of one English professor 
and increased celebrity for President Hutchins, who took a lap in the national media as a staunch defender of academic freedom. In 1936, Hutchins gave the Storrs Lectures at Yale, which were shortly thereafter published as The Higher Learning in America, Hutchins' most exhaustive statement on the motives for his Chicago plan. In 1937, Gideon's replied polemically with his own book, The Higher Learning in a Democracy, and in the autumn of 1937, John Crow Ransom published Criticism, Inc., with its admiring assessment of the Chicago critics. The Chicago fight was effectively over. What followed was the Chicago Cold War. But when the fall semester began, the Aristotelians had firm control over the curriculum, with student support. Charles Walgreen made his apology gift, the foundation for the study of American institutions, initially devoted to undergraduate convocations. Harry Gideons left the university at the end of the year, defeated. And at the end of the 1939 season, the football team was disbanded, among the more controversial pieces of Hutchins's Chicago plan. Their home field was turned over to the Nobel Prize-winning physics professor, Arthur Compton, who used it to build and house the world's first nuclear reactor, the Chicago Pile One. In 1941, Stagg Field became the official headquarters of the Manhattan Project. But the Chicago plan stalled in the 1940s, not only because of the war, but also because faculty became more organized, entrenched, and covert in their resistance. Milton Friedman and Alan Wallace returned to Chicago as faculty members in 1946. James Buchanan arrived the same year as a PhD student. In 1947, the Mount Pelerin Society was formed. As Eddie discussed last episode, it would cross-pollinate with the Chicago School for the next half century. Buchanan, Friedman, and Stigler all served as presidents of the society, and many other Chicago School professors and donors were members. In 1950, the founding president of Mount Pelerin, Frederick Hayek, joined Chicago's faculty, and three months later, Robert Hutchins resigned to become director of the Ford Foundation and organize against McCarthyism. His hand-picked successor was Lawrence Kimpton, who had been the chief administrative officer of the Manhattan Project, and who almost immediately implemented a version of what would come to be known as disaster capitalism, shock doctrine, or the Chicago playbook. He declared the university in financial crisis, used that crisis as a rationale for selectively defunding programs and dismantling the Chicago plan, while he simultaneously fundraised aggressively by promising donors that they could dictate the new path of the university by putting rigid terms on their gifts and endowments. In 1955, Kimpton suspended the Walgreen Lectures and transferred the Walgreen Foundation to the Graduate School of Business under Wallace, who in 1958 appointed George Stigler to, as he put it, the luxuriously upholstered Walgreen chair, controlling a lavish research budget. If ever there were an appropriate moment to deploy the cliché of winning the battle but losing the war, this is it, as Hutchins himself recognized. From 1958 forward, his public statements on education become increasingly cynical, self-recriminating, and even fatalistic. Among them, this interview from September of 1959. More talk than ever these days about what's wrong with the American educational system, particularly since Sputnik. Did I forget to mention, who else enrolled at the University of Chicago the same year Hutchins became president and received two degrees, finishing in 1934, thereafter becoming an icon of Chicago radio and U.S. labor. That's Studs Terkel. 
pundits and daily newspapers and varied journals of opinion are free with their opinions, but very few explanations are forthcoming. So we're fortunate this morning in having as our guest the eminent American educator, Dr. Robert Maynard Hutchins, former chancellor of the University of Chicago, president of the Fund for the Republic. The opinions of Dr. Hutchins have always been, we know to listeners, WFMT, fresh and provocative and original and courageous. Well, Dr. Hutchins, a preface to the conversation, as a uh, student on the campus back in the early days, I found a great deal of excitement and stimulation, sir, when you were chancellor. Thank you very much. It was exciting for me, too. What about this matter, Dr. Hutchins, in this post-Sputnik era, this they versus us concept of education? They are outstripping us, particularly in the field of the sciences. We must do something about this. Well, I think this is irrelevant and immaterial and incompetent. <laughs> I wouldn't pay the slightest attention to it. What we need is a good educational system for ourselves. And if the Russians were to sink in the sea tomorrow, we'd still need a good educational system for ourselves. A university is supposed to be a center of independent thought. And this is its only excuse for existence. The American university is becoming more and more a folk institution. That is, it is responsive to the whims, uh, hysterias, fancies uh, of the public or of any organized group of the public that is powerful enough to seduce it into taking an interest in a subject in which it ought not to be interested, or a, a group of the public that is sufficiently solvent to make it attractive to university administrators who want to raise money. Now, if you have a folk institution substituted for a center of independent thought, what you have is a eventually a kind of thing which is almost indistinguishable from a country club on the one hand, a trade school on the other hand, a group of uh, well-tubbed young Americans cavorting on the green grass uh, comes to be the symbol of what a university ought to be. But the essential point, the center of independent thought, the center of intellectual illumination, this is what is gone. Now, it happens that this is taking place, this decay, deterioration of the university into a folk institution at the very moment when we need centers of independent thought more than ever in our history. And it seems to me that there are only two courses open to us. One is to enter upon a drastic reform of American universities, and the other is to establish some new institutions that will do for the country and for the world what the universities ought to do, but which they cannot do if they insist on being responsive to the passing whims of those members of the population who have money or who are able to exert political pressure. Why is it that there is a school for mortuary scientists in Wayne University in Detroit? Well, it's because the profession of mortician wishes at one stroke to accomplish two purposes, to limit competition and to raise their social standing. So what they do is to have a, a department or a school in their field established in the university. They will very shortly get a, an act of the legislature passed providing that you can't practice the art of being a mortician in Michigan without going through this curriculum. This way you have the two things accomplished. 
what the university represents in the United States today, and what I mean by a folk institution, is that it is simply the, the result of the pressures exerted upon it to meet the immediate needs, desires, ambitions of those sections of the population that are powerful or with which the university wishes to ingratiate itself. If you are after money, you have to appeal to the people who have got it. And the way to appeal to the people who have got it is to represent to them that you are going to do what they would like to have appeal done. Appeal to their you're, values. Well, you're never going to, you wouldn't think of uh, producing eggheads in a university because everybody knows that eggheads are disturbing. You wouldn't think of having... You're also broke, too, this Yes, you wouldn't think of having a, a radical professor because uh, this would disturb the, the, the people who have got the money uh, that you are looking for. Therefore, your, your object must be to produce these fine, well-tubbed, ignorant young Americans who will fit uh, uh, gracefully into LaSalle Street. And your object must be to have a group of specialists on the university faculty who, if they ever say anything about contemporary life, say it in a jargon that no resident of LaSalle Street or nobody who works in LaSalle Street could possibly understand. Now, I don't object to this. I'm perfectly willing to have it go on, but I want to point out the gap it leaves in our national life, the gap it leaves in the contribution that America might make to the world. If you turn your institution into a simple representation of the complex of pressures exerted upon it, and you do this usually for financial reasons, then what you have lost is the centers of independent thought, the centers of intellectual illumination that this country requires now as never before in its history. I say it may be necessary to, simply to reconcile ourselves to the fact that the American university is so far gone in this direction that nothing can be done about it. But if this is so, then what we have to do is to set about establishing new institutions that will perform this function. I believe that it, such institutions are not inconceivable. In a mild way, I am hoping to develop one myself out of the Center for the Study of Democratic Institutions that we have just established at Santa Barbara, California. This is on the analogy to the Platonic Academy. It is simply a group of intelligent people trying to wrestle with important problems for the benefit of humanity. There's no obligations except to do this. And the whole apparatus of uh, football, fraternities, soliciting money, conducting activities for the purpose of attracting funds or gaining legislative support, this whole apparatus is disposed of. Now, if you can look forward to, say, a hundred centers in the United States of this kind that are solely devoted to trying to arrive at rational answers to serious problems, then it may be that you can substitute for the uh, university of the past these new intellectual beacons. In view of this malaise that you've outlined so graphically and frighteningly so well, uh, what are the careful young men today, those described as the careful young men, so many of the students at the universities today who who do play it safe, what, what can be done about them? Well, my, uh, my observation is uniform and it now covers almost 35 years in American education and that is that the students will respond to the best that is offered them. It isn't a question of the students, they, they, they are a reflection of the society and of 
what the university itself is trying to do. If the university itself is a reflection of the uh, current business mores of the community, then the students will fit into this. When you make an educational proposal, the usual comment is the students can't do the work or the students won't like it. I've never seen it, never seen that happen. This is simply an excuse for saying that the trustees and the faculty don't like it. So if or there's a don't challenge, the students will accept it. The students always accept it. My invariable experience, the students always respond. So those described as the prospective Madison Avenueers are doing no more than reflecting what they are taught and what they're conditioned to receive. So that's all that they're presented with. But you present them with something else and they'll respond to it quickly enough. The job of a president of a university, is his main job as far as the public is concerned, is to try to induce the public by every means he can think of to understand what a university is and what it ought to be and why it should be supported. I suppose the answer to my suggestion, namely that universities should be centers of independent thought, is that if they are, are centers of independent thought, they won't gain support. I don't believe this is true. It is, of course, true that independent thought leads to criticism, and criticism is unpopular. And you may become unpopular in certain quarters, and they may be very prosperous quarters. They may be the quarters inhabited by your prospective donors. But I believe that the American people can be brought to understand that without centers of independent thought, this country is going to go down the drain of history, and that with centers of independent thought, it has a chance of survival, and far more than survival. Has the difficulty for centers of independent thought, universities, stemmed to some extent from the anti-intellectual climate of our country in the past 15 years? Certainly, but I don't see any reason why the university should have yielded to it. I don't see why a university has to be anti-intellectual just because the bulk of the population are anti-intellectual. The university is a home of intellectual activity, and if it isn't that, it isn't anything. And I think it's almost fair to say that a university is good in terms of the controversy that goes on in it, and if you like, of the controversy that goes on about it. And if it is a university that is daily acclaimed by the local press, if everybody thinks it's great, then the chances are that it's going to hell. that the university we've encountered in this series, especially during the third and fourth episodes, under the regime of Ponzi austerity, is in what Hutchins would consider hell, seems evident. But the specifics of how it got there are important. How does the triumphalist return of George Stigler to the University of Chicago in 1958 facilitate the rise of the neoliberal university? I asked Eddie Nakah to help us connect the dots. One thing that I should say is that the story that I'm telling is a story about the local activities undertaken in support of a more global project. And it's important. The internal fights within Chicago are, are certainly important. But that's the sort of thing that neoliberalism does for the story. So the way that I would approach this question, it certainly does seem to be the case that, you know, if Hutchins was around, that things probably wouldn't have played out the way. I mean, for one, you want to talk about programs that were not flourishing. What about the business program? But it becomes a major power 
a leading power at Chicago, a, a very prestigious. Absolutely. Law school, <laughs> incre- right? Yeah. And the law school as well. Yes, yeah. you're right. The law school as well. I My understanding is that this isn't the kind of thing that would have made Hutchins do cartwheels. And so we're definitely talking about a change in priorities. The story that I would tell would be very consistent with that. I would add to it that it really is a story of the project of neoliberalism. Mm-hmm. I mean, it, it isn't there yet. See, and that's maybe part of the issue here is because if we go back to, say, 1940, mm-hmm. it, it's not there. It's just, it's too early for that. It, it really is a project that is taking off just a little bit later, and then it's really becoming big at Chicago in the 1950s. And then Stigler ends up coming back in 1958 to give Mm -hmm. you an idea of the time period that we're talking about. And it isn't fully formed. This is a project. These are people who are thinking things out. And one thing they are thinking out, and this I think is directly relevant to some of the big topics that you want to discuss, they're really concerned about what the purpose of a university is. Mm -hmm. How should it be organized? What is freedom in the pursuit of knowledge? And what kind of institutions should be devoted to that pursuit? These are all on the table. Gideon's is one of the figures that he was a target in the Walgreen hearings. He was one of these people that was being accused. Yeah. And you know, for people that knew him, I mean, it, it, it was a very strange sort of accusation. He testified, but later he ends up becoming sense of the Mon Pelerin Society. And he also grapples with this question of academic freedom in the context of the Red Scare. Should we extend such freedom of inquiry to communist professors. Yeah, I guess I would say that this was a question that they as an organization took seriously, and it had consequences for relations between the disciplines, certainly at Chicago, but elsewhere later on. So what is the neoliberal attitude towards universities, towards higher education that develops, in large part at least, not alone through the Chicago School, but this combination of the Mount Pelerin Society and the Chicago School and these other organizations that are the sort of intellectual foundations for neoliberal politics as well as orthodox economics. So that, I think, really is very important and interesting. And I think that to work our way into it, to crack that open, we probably need to talk just a little bit about what neoliberalism is, because it might not be entirely obvious. So the point of contrast here would really be with classical liberalism, right? Associated with figures such as Adam Smith or John Stuart Mill, for example. And one point to make about neoliberals is that they didn't call for laissez-faire. They weren't for laissez-faire. They believe classical liberalism failed in supporting markets. And in particular, it failed to mount a successful defense against various things that they would call collectivism. Socialism, of course, but not only. Social welfare liberalism, Keynesianism, they just felt that classical liberalism was ineffective against those challenges. And so if you go and look at something like Friedrich Hayek's The Road to Serfdom, Hayek positioned himself as an opponent of laissez-faire liberalism. So one thing is they're departing from classical liberalism. That's one of the things that makes them a neoliberalism. They're different than classical liberalism. 
they're also reconceptualizing what markets are supposed to be about. Yes, they liked markets, they did, but they changed the rationale for liking them because they changed in their understanding of what markets really were. So before, it was really common to praise them for their allocative properties. If I want something more than you, then a well-functioning market would deliver it to me. That would be the grounds for praising markets in terms of their allocative properties. That's a, a standard neoclassical way of talking about markets at the time. They want to change things. They want to conceive markets as systems of communication, but, but they want to go even beyond that. There's more to it than that. They want to say that markets should be understood as possessing unsurpassed capacities for producing, collating, and disseminating information, right? So you just can't do better. And the change that we're talking about here from markets as these great allocation devices to these unsurpassable information processing devices is primarily credited in the first instance to Friedrich Hayek. There's a book with Phil Murawski on this, Knowledge We Have Lost in Information. It goes into great detail about how it is that this played out within economics. But for our purposes, I think the there's a real crucial concept that comes out of thinking in this way, and that's the marketplace of ideas. Now, neoliberals would use this term as a kind of resource to critique state reason, to reconceptualize human freedom, to argue for restructuring of science, and communications and media studies scholars have picked up on this. They might not have linked it all the time to the work of neoliberals, but they're out there seeing this happen, and so you have a lot of work done on the marketplace of ideas and communications and media studies. Yeah. And so what I would say is, you know, you could use that as an entry point to understanding how neoliberalism developed in the way that did and what it seeks to achieve. So to address those questions that, that you're raising about the politics and the university itself. It raises some thorny questions. <laughs> it really does. Okay, let's say you believe that the market is the best method of organizing and disseminating information ever. But then how could it possibly give rise to knowledge that was like hostile to its own operation, right? If markets work, then how could one complain about the outcome of the marketplace of ideas? This is a really big problem for neoliberals because the major motivation for founding the Mont Pelerin Society is this belief that, that the intellectual tide had moved against them and that maybe they were even against the ropes here, okay? Why would they need to do that? See, it's strange mm -hmm. if you uh, believe that markets <laughs> work, right? Cognitive dissonance there for sure, yeah. That's what they had to grapple with. That mm -hmm. was clearly an issue for them. So they scrutinized this concept and they explored ways of operationalizing it. And it wasn't just one position that came out of this, at least not initially. There were a few distinct positions. Maybe the problem was the class of intellectuals because they had no experience administering property and they weren't aware of how the economic system works. And Hayek was prone to say things like this. Or maybe the problem had to do with the way that funding worked. So this was Milton Friedman's position. He thought that the, a dependence 
of professors on state funding produces this chilling effect on academic speech that would otherwise be directed at the activities of the government. And his approach was to talk over that, to take the message directly to the populace and popularize Chicago-style neoclassical arguments. So see, there's like a reason why you know who Milton Friedman is, right. because he believed that was the problem with the intellectual time, and he offered that as a solution. For me, at least among people at Chicago, Stigler's a really fascinating figure because he takes this notion of the marketplace of ideas and he pursues it really doggedly. <laughs> he actually disagrees with Milton Friedman. He says, people are rational and they buy all the information that you need. And what is it that you think you're doing by popularizing this information and bringing it to the masses? If anything, it's almost like that you're positing that there's a market failure there. And that's politically dangerous because we shouldn't, as good Chicago neoliberal scholars, believe that market failures are really a serious problem in the economy. See, for Stigler, he believed the problem was really like the instincts of the populace. So we're talking about just the person in the street, but also the professorate. See, he argued that it was foolish to believe that you could educate anti-market positions away because they were just in there too deeply. He talked about religion sometimes, this notion of throwing money changers out of the temple and stuff like that. It's there and you're not going to get rid of it. And so if you believe that, then the thing that you need to do is figure out how to get together those few who actually grasped the superiority of the market. And then you need to figure out how to impose those views on society to allow for the rollout of the market society. And that was the vision that he really plotted out for the Walgreen Foundation. He wanted to support the research of sympathetic scholars. It's not going to be about educating undergraduates so much. It's going to be about supporting research that was consistent with the neoliberal project at Chicago. And one important feature of this is he, they're going to produce this research to audit government activities. So I don't know if you're a reader of Foucault, but, you know, Foucault even notices this in The Birth of Biopolitics. He talks about this and he sees this as one of the features of neoliberal governmentality. And he was right in, in drawing attention to that aspect of Chicago. That was a particularly Stiglerian take on the appropriate role of the pro-market professor. So if you believe this way, that, of course, carries ramifications for what a university should be about, what it should be devoted to. If it's really about enhancing the epistemic operation of the market, then your natural next questions are going to be, okay, how should we fund activities? How should we fund research? Should teaching and research be combined at all? Or should they be spun off? What about tenure? Does that help the market? or hinder it. Actually, just to linger for a moment on tenure, see, it's not obvious a priori what position is going to be the one that they hit upon, right? Because remember, they think of themselves as a minority within academia, so maybe they might be favorable for as tenure protections. But on the other hand, one could argue that this as an institution hampered the proper operation of the marketplace and in producing information. And by the way, that latter position is the one that Stigler stakes out because he thinks that 
autonomous self-regulating faculties may be a, a big problem. They can stagnate, they can give rise to, to clacks, or they might pursue collectivists. Yes, yeah, it gets back to, at very least, there are those anti-market instincts. They're in there, and professors are people too. <laughs> there, yeah, the, there's that part of it. And so Stigler believed that business persons were the staunchest defenders of freedom in the pursuit of not. Like, really, he says this. Now, I mean, of course, you might ask, you may be wanting to ask, it's a curious position to take in light of the events that led to Stigler mm-hmm. having the Walgreen position in the first place. and Or at very least, it makes you wonder, whose freedom are we talking about? And what kind of knowledge are they supposed to be producing? And Stigler, again, he does think this through. He argues that it would be good to separate teaching from research. It would be good to insulate premier researchers from the demands of the rest of the faculty and students. To give numbers, he said that something like 4% of professors are truly productive, and so you want to care for them and make sure that they're not subject to the same demands that are placed on the remaining 96% of professors. Okay, so you know clearly we're talking about freedom of that group of people here. And then if you take them and you link them up somehow with these, what he called high quality leaders of the marketplace, those people that can understand the virtues of the market, those outsiders, those business persons, if you can find a way to bring them together, then you've really got something. And that's the vision. Okay. And that actually is the vision that triumphs at at Chicago. You'll have these elite program building researchers who would anticipate the wishes of economic elite. And these elites wouldn't necessarily know what they wanted. How could they? But they know it when they saw it. And they would recognize the good stuff when presented with it. And then they would finance it. And that gives you the knowledge that you want. And then the other 96% are teaching fellows, right? Who are to become the academic precariat. It's really interesting to, to go back and look at his writings because one of the proposals is why do we even have appointments at universities? You can imagine them cobbling together positions at various universities mm-hmm. and traveling between them. And, and that's how they put together a career in teaching. That's, yes, that's, that's. The, the st- I, did, I, I, had, I would never have guessed that Stigler anticipated the freeway flyer adjunct, but <laughs> it sounds as though he did. There, there's at least a rationale for it. There. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many things I want to follow up, but something that you say in your piece on Chicago imperialism is that Stigler kind of led an intentional undermining of the political standing of other disciplines and sometimes even physically stole their property. Those are your words, I believe. <laughs> but I don't know if I'd use the word steal. For the record, Eddie's right. He and Robert Van Horn did not use the verb steal. The quote reads instead, Chicago imperialists do not make disinterested and welcomed arguments to advance academic discourse, but assert their position to conquer another discipline, and sometimes even take the property of another discipline, 
so their position might prevail. But the first part of what you said is, is right. Uh, and, and he says the, pur- the purpose really is to, I'll use his words, he wanted to sh- shatter the fond hopes of the scholarly professions. This is the way that he described it. And what does he have in mind? Let's go back to this instincts thing. Remember that professors are people too, and people are instinctively against the market, and professors are as well. So what do you do in that situation? One thing that you can do is identify those disciplines that have political standing. Mm -hmm. They have political standing, and then you can go in and challenge that standing. Challenge that standing with views that he would have said more realistic understanding of the way that democracy would work. But in any event, challenge the views and challenge their political standing. And in the United States, but not only, there were various increasing ways that disciplines, even scientific disciplines, would play formal roles in state regulation. Think drugs, for example, where you have clinical science that is a major contributor to the decisions of the Food and Drug Administration. One of the things that Stigler wanted to do is challenge that standing when he saw that it undermined the operation of the marketplace of ideas. The term that this usually goes by is economics imperialism. It's actually a good term. It's it's a good term in that it was a term that they, those at Chicago, particularly those that were close to Stigler, used. Stigler himself used this term to describe the program that in part was run with the Green funds. And it also shows that what they were after was not this kind of rich interdisciplinarity where there was a conversation with other disciplines where both would benefit from a rich conversation. It really was this idea that I'm not going to convince you. And so what's left is just to figure out some way to Zero-sum competition for resources. For for resources, but also to bring the state around to your way of viewing things. Mm -hmm. And, And see, this also raises another point. See, the point wasn't to get the state to just shrink. It wasn't like that. Every once in a while, you'd see public proclamations that, that right. sounded like that. Friedman was prone to say yeah. things like that from time to time. Yeah. But actually, this is a crude uh, way of expressing mm-hmm. the position. A person like Stigler and those around him thought, OK, we can leave the state in place. In fact, why not? But if we can just figure out a way to direct state activities. So this gets back to the point that Foucault was making long ago, back in the 1970s. And that's the logic of it is really related to this idea of economics imperialism, where you'll go in and you undermine the political standing of other disciplines. And there were some efforts devoted to doing this in disciplines that were closer. So you see with political science, efforts to do that, efforts in sociology and so on. It it does set up this idea of, let's say, less than friendly relations 
with other disciplines. And it really comes from the participation in the neoliberal project. We'll be coming back to Eddie momentarily to talk specifically about how economics imperialism impacts the humanities. But this is one part of Eddie's argument, which I think needs to be complicated by Anna Dorothea Schneider's research on the Neo-Aristotelians and the Chicago fight they instigated. It seems to me that the project of Chicago economics, at least as it pertains to the structure and purpose of the university, predates the founding of Mount Pelerin, the end of the Second World War, and the emergence of neoliberalism. What I see in many of the documents of the Chicago fight especially the debates between Hutchins and Gideons, is the paradigms of neoliberalism being pursued at a local level. Take, for instance, spontaneous order, the alternative to planned economy preferred by neoliberals and usually attributed to writings by Friedrich Hayek and Michael Pugliani in the 1940s. Gideons accepts Hutchins' characterization of the confusion produced by disciplinary specialization and competition between departments. Chaos and disorder, Gideons says, maintains a field that is widely open to new truth, while unity imposed by authority is only another name for uniformity. Over and over, Gideons and other Chicago economists accuse Hutchins of seeking tyrannical rule, often mimicking verbatim the anti-New Deal talking points about President Roosevelt. Gideons uses the term free enterprise as a euphemism for deregulating industry rolling back labor protections, and dismantling the welfare state, all in the name of escape from authoritarianism. And he frequently toggles back and forth between his aspersions on the New Deal and the Chicago Plan. In a roundtable discussion with T.V. Smith, a philosophy professor who had just been elected to the U.S. House of Representatives, and Jerome Kerwin, the political scientist who was chosen to chair the Walgreen Foundation at its outset, Gideons denies that his colleagues, both New Deal Democrats, can in good conscience call themselves liberals, as they had accepted central planning in the name of humanitarianism without recognizing that it will, in Gideon's words, make it very hard to preserve a free society. By the end of their heated discussion, Kerwin makes an ominous prediction. I get it then, Harry. You are not opposed to the very rigorous operation of government authority so long as it happens to be used for the restoration of an old liberalism. Now, I believe your government can be just as tyrannical and just as overpowering and just as fascist, if you want to put it that way, in restoring this old liberalism as it can be in bringing about a better condition, as we believe, for the working classes of the nation. Three months later, Gideons resigned from the University of Chicago. When he joined the Mount Pelerin Society almost 10 years later, he would work specifically on issues of academic freedom, that is, on how to undermine it because it protects communists. Gideons is thus not only a figure, like Friedman, Stigler, and Wallace, who connects the Chicago school of the late 20th century to its interbellum antecedents, but the contributions he makes are based upon his hard-won experience during the Hutchins regime, perhaps are, in part, motivated by those old grudges. And we see what might be called the characteristic Chicago school formulation, freedom for me secured by dominion over thee, emerging in a moment of grievance. The Chicago fight played out in a marketplace of ideas, 
and Gideon's lost. How could it be so? And how could it be ensured that it would not happen again? I, I have to ask, and I, I understand based on our, our previous email correspondence, you may not want to speculate too much on this front, but given what we've just talked about, I think I have to ask, through Murawski and McClowski, one of neoliberalism and the Chicago School's sort of foundational ideas is communication, as you put it, or information expressed numerically, expressed as models, as data, as something with a kind of numerical mathematical foundation. And I'm curious, this seems to be something that arises during this earlier era of Chicago interdepartmental politics, right? A kind of collision between scientism as reduced to the disciplines that have a kind of mathematical foundation versus the Aristotelian disciplines, right, which have this kind of metaphysical disposition, at least as it is expressed in the 1930s and 1940s, right? In your research, is there a kind of overt animosity towards the humanities, in part because they make a claim to the sort of superiority of a kind of communication that is language or rhetoric, as opposed to the communication favored by the market expressed as prices, values. That's an interesting way to put it. I would do it in this way because, see, I think that there are two things at play here. Mm -hmm. One has to do with economics versus the humanities. Mm -hmm. Okay. And there's an issue there. <laughs> There's an issue there because certainly neoclassical economics, which is ascendant in the United States after World War II, really does look toward the natural sciences for guidance as to the appropriate way of studying the economy. You can argue, many have Phil Murawski in particular has argued that this is the defining feature of neoclassical economics. So that's there, and that's there prior to the neoliberalism. So we can think about it in this way. There are neoclassical economists, there are neoliberals, and they're not the same, <laughs> but they do overlap. Mm -hmm. And where they overlap is Chicago. Okay. Remember, we were talking about Chicago's worried because the professors are against them too. By the way, that's economics as well. Yeah. See, they saw themselves as a minority position within economics at the time. Now they become very influential, <laughs> things change. But at the time period that we were talking about here in 1950s, 1960s, for sure, they would have been the neoclassicals who are also neoliberals. Now, there are also neoliberals who are not neoclassicals. Friedrich Hayek, who actually also spent some time at Chicago as well, was one of them. And the reason I'm bringing this up is because I want to be careful about this. There were reasons for neoclassical economists to be let's say, less than favorable in their view of the humanities without even taking into consideration the neoliberalism that we've been talking about. But of course, you do raise this interesting point, right? Is what happens to your view of the human person when you start to think of markets as these 
super information processing devices that are so powerful that they outthink you. <laughs> You're necessary for their operation, but they outthink you. And I would say that once you take that on board, then that really does raise some problems for clinging to a, a humanist view, right? Wait, I want to go back there. You said there were some reasons why neoclassical econom economists were hostile towards the humanities. Will you flesh that out a little bit? I think I know what you're talking about, but I want to make sure we clarify that. Yeah, okay. I think it would be because they saw that the right way to understand truth about society was by following the methods of the natural sciences. Now, not everybody believed that. There had been some episodes in the history of economics where you had people that wanted to be more historical in orientation and wanted to engage in explorations in that way. Some of the institutionalists went that route as well. But see, that is part of what's happening here is we're talking about a time in which classical economics ascends to become the dominant approach to economics within the United States. Whereas prior to that, um, in the interwar period and before, there were lots of competing approaches, but institutionalists would have been very important players. You have the common school that was located at Wisconsin, for example, very important players there. And so part of it is that you have this change that's happening within economics and you have the one group that is devoted to casting its work in terms that natural sciences are using. I think that's part of it. And so for them, the idea that we have something that we can learn from the humanities, no, I, that, that's just not. And so this is one of the reasons why you brought up two people in your question, Phil Murawski and Deirdre McCloskey. McCloskey is an interesting case because Deirdre McCloskey studies economic history, but she ends up being very concerned about the direction that Chicago took. By the way, Stigler Chicago right. took. And why? Because Stigler was one of the people that was in favor of getting rid of the history requirement at the University of Chicago. And it's consistent, right? If you believe in the marketplace of ideas and you believe it works well, what are we going to get out of history? What role can history play? A lot of this good stuff you know, would survive. And so why are we going to go back into history and mine it for useful knowledge that can be brought to bear on the way that we practice economics today? And, and consequently, what we have nowadays is, generally speaking, a profession that is unconcerned with its history and doesn't devote a lot of attention to, to studying it. Mm -hmm. That's one of the things I also saw going back to the prior conflicts, the sort of Chicago fight is one of the things at stake was how important is history, right? There seems to be a conflict about history that predates the Stigler moment, which has to do with Gideon's on one side saying, much as you ascribe to Stigler, the marketplace of ideas has yielded what matters. We don't have to study history because what history has taught us already exists in the present, right? And this other side, the Hutchins side, 
also fr- a little bit frighteningly conservative, has this sort of great books tradition of the best has, that has been thought and said. We have to teach the classics. So history is at stake throughout this sort of squabbles at the University of Chicago, both within economics and outside of it. And I was hoping maybe you'd talk a little bit more about the sort of standing of history in neoliberalism. Ah, okay. This kind of gets back to our little Venn diagram, because there certainly are neoliberals that are interested in history. Hayek writes about history, for example. Maybe the thing to be clear about here is that sometimes neoliberalism is presented as if it's an insurgency of the economists on everyone else. And I I get it. I get get why it is that people think that way, because there really was an an important presence of economists there, both at the founding of the Montpelier and Society and throughout. But it's really a lot more than that. It's this kind of transnational, transdisciplinary thing that is very interested in bringing about the further rollout of their ideal market society. And it uses economics, but not just. And so you do have neoliberals who speak the language of history, Mm -hmm. who you have ones that do philosophy, you have ones that do journalism, you do have that. So if you look at a person like Hayek, um, Hayek here was a person who was complaining about scientism. At one time, that's what he would have been known for. He was complaining about scientism. And in particular, he was very much complaining about neoclassical economics. He thought that neoclassical economics lent itself to planning right? Chicago may be the exception, but he thought neoclassical economics lent itself to that, right? But over time, Hayek really does increasingly take on views that had been developed in the sciences and uses them in his own thought. So, see, this is the reason why I want to be nuanced about this, because... The hostility towards history is not universal within neoliberal economics, right? As we just within the economic with with within economics nowadays, Mm -hmm. I would say that it's pretty hostile to history is carried out within academic history departments. You do have cleometrics, Mm -hmm. which was a form of economics imperialism that was certainly something that neoclassicals could look to as an example of what maybe good history would look like. If we're looking at just what economics is doing nowadays, then there doesn't seem to be a lot of movement for opening up a space for the humanities to play this mutually beneficial role with economics. I don't see it, at least. And if anything, I think that there's been Students like it. Students are very interested in history. There's, I think, little question about that. But the profession itself hasn't opened up a lot of space for that kind of exchange Mm -hmm. between disciplines or, or the humanities in general. 
As Eddie reveals in his chapter for the Building Chicago Economics Collection, upon Stigler's assumption of the Walgreen Chair of Business in 1958, he, Friedman, and Wallace celebrated with a song, a song of their own composition. Twenty-five years for the tale to unfold Yo-ho-ho, and again there are three Walgreen was good and Kempton was bold Yo-ho-ho, and again there are three This is, as you may recognize, a parody of the pirate shanty authored by Robert Louis Stevenson for his novel Treasure Island an earworm that works almost like an incantation upon the novel's youthful protagonist, romanticizing the pirate's life. Only the chorus, upon which the Chicago School version is based, appears in Stevenson's novel. But by 1958, it had inspired dozens of adaptations, including a complete ballad version, authored by Young Allison, which became the lyrics for the first Broadway performance of Treasure Island, and thereafter a standard for recording artists, including Ed McCurdy, who released it as part of his 1956 collection of murder ballads, a genre which had only recently been codified. Fifteen men on a dead man's chest Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum Drink and the devil had done for the rest Yo-ho-ho and a bottle of rum The skipper lay with his head in gore the scullion's axe, his head had shore. The scullion he was stabbed times four. The Allison McCurdy version narrates mutiny in grotesque detail, emphasizing the careful planning, coordination, and subterfuge, which prequels the massacre of ten of the crew by the other fifteen, climaxing with the braining of the captain, who in the Chicago School version, one presumes, is Robert Hutchins. Thus, the mature version of Chicago School economics, made possible by increased control over curricula and budgets at the University of Chicago, is imagined by its founders as not only an insurrection against Hutchins's Chicago plan, but a mass slaughter of the Aristotelian contingent congregated in the humanities, and a takeover of their ship. The poem hinges on what William Imsen might call a second-type ambiguity, the identity of Walgreen, either Charles Sr. or Charles Jr., and the nature of his goodness, whether in interfering with the operation of the Walgreen Foundation, creating the foundation in the first place, or attacking the imaginary Red Professoriate under Hutchins in 1935. What distinguishes this ambiguity from other types is that all these connotations can be true simultaneously. And thus, under critical scrutiny, the three, Friedman, Stigler, and Wallace, who are the implied authors, narrators, and protagonists, might selectively deny their intention to signal approval for red baiting or the private capture of a public good. 
but their intention does not matter. All the interpretations cohere and unify, especially given the poetic structure that has been chosen. A quatrain with ABAB rhyme scheme and identical second and fourth lines makes symmetrical the opening iams of the first and third, 25 years, and Walgreen was good, thus connecting the actions of all Walgreens across the quarter century from 1933 to 1958 to this categorical good, which requires only a catalyst, Kempton's boldness, to manifest. Befitting the Christian, conservative, agrarian tradition, this goodness is seasonal, a return or a rebirth, in any case a repetition, like the lines of the poem, which simultaneously memorializes and heralds a trinity. Friedman, Stigler, and Wallace reconvene at the University of Chicago as a self-appointed three-person savior to restore it to its former glory, that is, unless we allow a little too much history or genre to perforate the poem. Then they're bloody pirates getting drunk on stolen rum, toasting a mutiny just accomplished, and the imminent raid to come. Let's get back to the text with which we started, John Crow Ransom's Criticism Incorporated. Here's Anna Dorothea Snyder. In his 1937 essay Criticism Incorporated, John Crow Ransom, one of the leading new critics, was the first to express high hopes in Ronald Crane at the University of Chicago, who had pleaded for a shift in emphasis and for placing criticism over historical literary scholarship. Even before, in 1933 already, John Livingston Lowe's, then acting president of the Modern Language Association, had encouraged his colleagues to step beyond strictly philological scholarship. He had advised them Critical interpretation is the ultimate end of our scholarship, and the ultimate end of our research is criticism, in the fullest sense of an often misused word. Crane, at the University of Chicago, obviously heard the message. He seems to have been somewhat fed up with the then-dominating studies of literature, which consisted more or less in the accumulation of facts about literary works and their authors. What he felt was missing was criticism, that is, the intrinsic analysis and subsequent evaluation of literary works. Back to the primary sources, to the works themselves, the text, its construction, its effects, maybe that's how one could circumscribe his impetus. Anyway, in 1935, he published an essay pleading for literary criticism at English and modern language departments. Crane wanted literary history reduced to a mere ancillary. Now enter John Crow Ransom. In his 1937 article, Criticism Incorporated, he took up Crane's promptings. Ransom argued that the task of criticism is aesthetic evaluation. The heaps of facts accumulated by the scholarship of literary history become only meaningful when they are interpreted and structured by critical reflection, he said. He recognized Crane explicitly as the first of the professorial incumbents to have advocated criticism as a major policy for departments of English. Ransom wrote modernist poetry and had been teaching at Vanderbilt since 1927. He was going to become one of the leading new critics. New criticism was all for intrinsic analysis of poetry and literary works, so one would assume that 
New critics and Chicago critics from then on marched side by side or arm in arm. But not so. Both were formalist schools, to be sure, but in 1942, that is, five years after Ransom had voiced his hopes in Crane, assuming he had found an ally in him, Crane criticized the new critics' approach as platonic. And platonic to Crane always meant idealist and deductively operating. As an Aristotelian, Crane favored inductive methods, that is, the generalization from particular experiences over deduction, the subsuming of particular experiences under general principles. Induction to Crane was kind of synonymous with scientific procedure. Too many new critics, Crane noted, chose a pet hypothesis a priori and only afterwards looked out for facts and data to fit in, instead of the other way round. On top, they often disregarded historical facts and common sense. So the relationship between the camp of the new critics and that of the Chicago critics was becoming strained and in a way competitive. I describe this in detail in my book Humanities at the Crossroads, but I will try to outline the difference between the two critical camps in short. The new critics have been interested primarily in an ontological essential definition of poetry and imaginative literature. New criticism's first premise was poetry's language, whereas the theoretical starting point for the Chicago neo-Aristotelians' approach to literature was not language, that is the medium, but mimesis, that is imitation, a concrete work which is a simulation aiming at a certain intended effect. The adherents of new criticism instead attempted to determine the essence of poetry ontologically and proceeded deductively. For them, all the surface structures of individual works were variations of a universal semantic pattern or theme hidden in the deep structure. Crane, by contrast, regards structure as the individual work's specific shaping. According to him, the specific morphological manifestation of the work of art allows us to determine its content, form and intention by induction and to rationally reconstruct the respective causal functional nexus of these elements. Or, to put it another way, while the artist finds the shaping principle by aiming at a specific effect, the critic can reconstruct or recover this principle by reasoning back from the effect of the work and its specific qualities. While the new critics regarded language as an autonomous natural living power, Crane, by contrast, emphasizes the constructional aspect. In his view, the verbal work of art is rationally composed. Consequently, Crane repudiates the new critics' banishment of some aspects of literary criticism, which they denounced as fallacies. Intentional fallacy, effective fallacy, and fallacy of the neoclassic species do not exist for Crane. To him, all of these aspects may contribute to an illumination of literary works. Each has its place within a cooperative pluralism based on the division of labor. For instance, as a directing cause, that is, as part of the poet's intention, affection or the intended emotional effect on the reader does influence the composition and thus the structure of a work. If someone should be interested to take a further look into the differing approaches and methods of new criticism and Chicago criticism, 
I would recommend reading the two contrasting interpretations of Hemingway's famous short story, The Killers. One by Ronald Crane, published in his book The Idea of the Humanities, Volume 2, and the other by Cleanth Brooks and Robert Penn Warren, to be found in Understanding Fiction. Crane's text comprises 11 pages, while Brooks and Warren need more than 20, which in a way says it all, for by the standards of the philosophy of science, explanations which need too many auxiliary hypotheses, especially when they are ad hoc, are deficient. So after the initial enthusiasm over criticism as a common goal to engage in, finally disenchantment set in on both sides. The moment Criticism Incorporated was written was also the moment when Hutchins and the Chicago critics seemed to have gained the upper hand in the Chicago fight. In the essay, Ransom seems to regard Crane as an ally and their projects as more or less aligned. But two years later, after returning from a trip to Chicago for the MLA convention, Ransom told his former colleagues at Vanderbilt that though Crane was the best of the lot of literary scholars he had seen at MLA, even he was not quite up to the mark. Ransom told Alan Tate the best strategy was to let the professors alone. As we discussed with Andy Hines a couple weeks ago, they saw an opportunity to foreclose the discipline as it had existed up to that point and rededicate to professional criticism along new critical lines. In Anna's book, and in many of the primary sources she surfaces, the Chicago fight is presented as not only the humanities versus the social sciences, but as liberal arts versus vocationalism, general education versus specialization, metaphysics versus utilitarianism, induction versus deduction, interdisciplinarity versus isolationism, presentism versus ahistoricism, critical theory versus scientific positivism, egalitarianism versus capitalism, and New Dealers versus anti-communists. As the new criticism evolved, coincidentally, it almost always leaned away from the Aristotelian side of these binaries. Ransom and the other new critics chose to professionalize criticism around a conception of text as delicate flower and context as inconvenient manure, as Langston Hughes described it. Like neoclassical economics, it was aggressively ahistorical and ostensibly apolitical. The new critics were happy to keep their departmental silo and grow their disciplinary vocabulary. And that strategy was well suited to the interdepartmental competition for resources, which would come to define the administration of a post-war university, or multiversity, as Clark Kerr, who was the president of University of California for much of the 1950s, called it. Because there was no longer anything universalizing about what went on there. The preclusion of cross-disciplinary pollination was, in Hutchins's eyes, the greatest failure of U.S. higher education. I think that the university should be organized in order to understand the world. A university is organized now in order to produce people who will teach the subject that the department is teaching. Therefore, we ought to abolish the department. The university department is now the most menacing 
most menacing phenomenon on the stage of human history, uh, not excluding the Black Panthers and the SDS. <laughs> so you change the university by making the university a group of people, young, medium young, and old, who come together to study in order to understand the great intellectual disciplines and their applications to the major problems of modern man. And the whole gist of the university, instead of being divided into smaller and smaller compartments, each isolated from the other, the whole gist of the university, the whole purpose of the university is this purpose of comprehension, which can only be done in a comprehensive way. The suggestion is that when I said that I was against departments, what I meant was that I would have everybody all jumbled up together. I believe that the group should be organized. The law school or the law department should be a legal group, because it has a, there are enormous advantages in every subject, and having discussions going on within the group. But then I would insist that everything that is done by the law school group should be made known, for such interests as they may have, you know, to the other groups. And everything that is done by the other groups should be made known to the law school. And the, the principal obligation of each group is to make sure that it understands the others. Now, when I say that I, don't, that I think the university department is the greatest menace on the world, on the world stage today, what I mean is that the, it prevents the existence of a university. The department, under the present structure of the university, is interested only in its own expansion, only in better facilities, more people, higher salaries, it doesn't care anything at all about the, the rest of the institution. And it's, the focus of its work is on itself, on its own discipline, and on nothing else. And under these circumstances, the department is really at the bottom of the difficulties of the modern university. In 1953, Hutchins returned to the University of Chicago to give the Walgreen Lectures, which he dedicated to the memory of Charles R. Walgreen. This was a tactical mistake, in my opinion. Only a few minutes in, he starts describing, quote, those horrors in the evolution of capitalism accurately described by Karl Marx, unquote. Much as I might concur with the gist of what Hutchins says, this was tantamount to dancing on Walgreen Sr.'s grave while Walgreen Jr. watched. It explains to some degree why Friedman, Stigler, and Wallace penned a murder ballad about Hutchins a few years later. Hutchins's Walgreen lectures were titled The University of Utopia. They're a fun read, and perhaps the fullest statement of his vision for higher education. They are supported by a dialectical theory of utopia that acknowledges both the responsibility educational institutions bear for creating a demos of utopians and the responsibility of that demos for empowering those educational institutions. Near the end of his final lecture, Hutchins asks, is it possible to have the University of Utopia without first having utopians? And answers, if we conclude that we cannot have a University of Utopia without having utopians, we shall be in desperate condition indeed, for how shall we ever get utopians? unless we can produce them through our educational system. To paraphrase that critic whose genealogy John Guillory traces back to the Chicago school, utopia has to start somewhere. One of the big picture things, maybe the big picture thing, is that the future of knowledge over the next 10, but probably 100 years, is post two cultures integration of STEM with non-STEM, with cultural and psychological knowledge that 
is d- intense, deep, mm-hmm. thorough, and that would allow the technological solutionism that's happening on the other side of campus to make the right kind of difference in the societies that we live in. So that humanities is on the front lines and literary study as the place of what Bruce Robbins calls the experience of the other among many other kinds of insights into experience, psychological and cultural and intersubjective, is going to be central to that. It's not the kind of tack on to technological progress that it's been treated as really since World War II as like a military and capitalist economic formation. It's going to have to be inside. It's going to have to lead. It's going to have to be at the front of stuff. It's going to have to be able to define what the problems are that, and what a plausible solution to those problems are. And we're not, we can't do that under current institutional conditions. It's almost impossible. But I, yeah. the, the will is there and the ideas are there. I just think that's really important. That, And I think Eric Hyatt makes this point, but it's like the traditional system of the disciplines is also one of the crisis nodes for us because humanities skills and humanities concepts are mm-hmm fundamental to, integral to all of the engineering and business and medical kind of crises that seem to be driving the vocational university. So climate change, urban design, medical ethics, the politics of difference and media fluency, (laughs) that these are the kind of big topos that are the post-disciplinary topos that the humanities are absolutely integral to, but that our traditional systems of organization aren't actually helping us articulate or promote. That was Anna Kornblum and Chris Newfield. Thanks to all our guests for lending their voices to our deep dive into the Chicago fight. For more about this episode, please visit marktwainstudies.com backslash Chicago fight or subscribe to our newsletter. This marks roughly the midway point in Criticism Limited, the eighth season of the American Vandal podcast. We have so far covered crises and origins, and next week, We're going to start looking to the future. What can be done? What is being done? Who's working on building? I'm Matt Siebel. Thanks for listening to the American Vandal from the Center for Marketing Studies.